This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Uh, the first reading is Psalm 2, which can be found on page 424 in the Pew Bibles. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Kiss his feet, or he will be angry, and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in him. Hear the word of the Lord. I'll be reading from Mark, and you can find it in your pew Bibles on page 812. It is Mark 1, 1 to 11. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean, Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John, who was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, he proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks, Charles. Keep, uh, we'll turn back to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 that we had read for us earlier, because as Tim said, we're looking at the Psalms, 
seeing clearly in the Psalms is our theme for January. Um, let's pray and ask that God would indeed show himself in his word. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that we would see you this morning, that you would show us yourself, that you would enliven and awaken uh, us, that you would uh, enlighten the, the eyes of our hearts, that we would know you. And in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now, I was 44 when they told me I needed reading glasses. Uh, until then, I'd always had perfect vision. Uh, I, it was a, a kind of point of pride, especially in comparison to my dad, who has thick glasses, about an inch thick, Coke bottle bottom, Coke bottle bottom glasses, those sorts of glasses. And he remembers being a kid when they first gave him glasses that he was able to say, oh, the teacher's actually writing words on the board and, and walls are made of bricks. He hadn't actually seen those before. Um, whereas for me, it took till I was much older, 44, but it was amazing putting on the glasses how much things just cleared up. Everything came magically into focus. I didn't have to hold the book at this sort of distance from my eyes anymore. The great theologian, John Calvin, once said that the Bible was like a pair of glasses, that God's word in the Bible is like a pair of glasses. And that's particularly true of the Psalms. When we read them, we can see reality much more clearly, things coming to focus. Just looking at the world around us gives us a rather blurry image, a blurry image of how things really are. We cannot really see God or the creation or history or even ourselves. But put these glasses on, we can see. Through these spectacles, we can see. And so we are going to put on the reading glasses of the Psalms this summer and see what comes into focus. And today's set of lenses comes from Psalm 2. And the question for us, the question that the psalm addresses, is human power and the course of history. What will these human power, what will human power in the course of history look like when we put the glasses of this psalm, the lenses of this psalm on and look at it through those, those lenses? And what we will see is that in this psalm is that Jesus and not anyone else is Lord. Jesus and not anyone else is Lord. Well, the psalm opens by looking at global politics and it's asking the question, what do we see when we look at human affairs? Who has control for just to look out into the world? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. Human politics, says the psalmist, is a conspiracy against the Lord God and his anointed king, his Christ. Those in power would like nothing more than to throw off the shackles of having to recognize God and, to make them, and want to make themselves the measure of all things. It was true 3,000 years ago when the psalm was written and it's true today. Not that we see this plotting done explicitly all the time, mind you. In fact, some world rulers claim to bow the knee to Christ, but their actions betray them. When human beings accumulate power, whether that be economic or cultural or military or political power, 
it is mostly held in defiance of the true God and with a wish to overthrow him. It is a rare human leader that bows the knee to the true God. Now, in the secular West, we can see on the one hand leaders who say they own the name of Christ, but whose behaviour, both politically and personally, makes a mockery of that claim. And on the other hand, we see an explicit rejection of all that is connected to Christ and his name and a concerted effort to eradicate Jesus from our culture, except where he is sort of forgettable and impotent. In the rest of the world, the two-thirds world, as Prince Charles has noted, Christians are the most persecuted group in the world, sometimes attacked by insurgent groups, sometimes attacked by governments, sometimes attacked by insurgent groups sponsored by governments. In a generation, Christians have been pushed out of the lands of the Bible, often violently, just to take one example. 90% of Iraq's Christian community have left that country in the last two decades. Just on Christmas Day, 12 Christians were murdered by terrorists in Nigeria. And what's being done about this? What could ever halt the tide of this attack? Now, I don't know if you, like me, sometimes feel discouraged by the way that the, the sweeping flood of human events seems to be if you're ever turning against the true Lord in this way. But the psalmist offer us, offers us a different point of view. Now notice in the first couple of verses that he says that the nations and the peoples plot in vain, in vain. They attempt to subdue and suppress Christ. But how could they? What are they thinking? Their opposition to him is actually futile. And the tone of these three verses is actually not one of dismay and desperation, but one of amazement. For the people who oppose God and his anointed king oppose him in utter futility. If they knew the truth, would they possibly stand in his way. It's a bit like that embarrassing moment. I don't know if you've had this particular sort of embarrassment moment when you've, you've been, you discover you've been explaining to an expert the very thing they're expert in. I heard the story of a cardiologist who was standing in the street and a man collapsed on the street of apparent heart attack and he was about to help when this large lady rushed over and elbowed the cardiologist aside and said, I have a first aid certificate. Let me get to him. Personally, I remember as a teenager, about 16, I met John Stott, who was once called the English Billy Graham, was probably one of the best-known Anglican ministers and Christian authors in the whole world. And in my naivety, I proceeded to give him a nice theological lecture about a controversial subject, not realising that he had written and spoken about this very subject across the world to thousands of people. That's how silly the rulers look when they defy God. And the mismatch between God and those who would defy him is so large that what reaction does it, does it produce in God? What do you see in verse 4? It actually produces laughter in God. 
And this is not comfortable laughter or tender laughter. It's scornful, mocking laughter. It's derision. There's nothing comforting about knowing that God laughs here. The powers of the earth think of themselves as almighty and infallible and omniscient and all-righteous, but they're having themselves on. They're merely pipsqueaks before God. They are destined for humiliation if they continue in this defiance, a bit like the Double Bay under-10s rugby challenging the Wallabies to the get to a game. Well, actually, they might beat the Wallabies. The All Blacks to a game. It's actually a bit comical, and it would turn out to be dangerous if we let the nine-year-olds out onto the field. Can you see the change in perspective on human power we've got through looking at, the, through looking at things through the lenses of Psalm 2? And specifically, what is God going to do about arrogant human power? How does he plan to put it in its, in, in its place? Well, that's what happens in verses 5 and 6. He appoints his king to rule over them from Zion, from Jerusalem, his holy hill. The kings of the earth may think of themselves as divine, but the true God has set his king over them. He's established the line of David, his king, to subdue and to rule over all the nations. And in the next few verses, we get something of a coronation ceremony. I was just watching The Crown last night. I'm catching up on the TV I didn't watch during the year. And I got to the coronation scene where Elizabeth is set on the throne. And this is a bit like that. It's a, it's a coronation prayer, coronation ceremony. In verses 7 to 9, we hear the Lord's decree to his king in Israel. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. I have a very special and close relationship with you, says God. And I'm going to make you a promise. God promises to his king. What's the promise say? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's an almighty empire, isn't it? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is, you will be impregnable, unassailable, unbeatable. You will rule over and conquer all those arrayed against God. People will come in under your authority, whether they do it willingly or not. No one will stand against you. In fact, when God sets up his king, his king will be the instrument of judgment on the nations who won't submit to him. They will be utterly crushed like a piece of pottery. So what's the wise thing for them to do? What should they do? We'll have a look at verse, the next few verses, verses 10 and following. Be wise. When you're faced with overwhelming odds, what do you do? You submit. So that's what verses 10 to 12 say. Rulers and kings smarten up, get with the program, see the way the history is heading, look with the eyes, the spectacles of this psalm, and you'll see what will inevitably happen. And so you'll submit to the Lord and to his king, you'll serve him, you'll obey him, you'll direct your lives according to his will and his purpose, you'll come to him for refuge and safety and security. To put it bluntly, serve him, or the alternative is destruction. The very fact is that in Israel's history, this just didn't seem to happen. Or if it did happen, it only happened for a very short period. 
the nations did gather against Jerusalem and against her king, God's anointed, the sons of David, and they marched in and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and they took the king and the court off in exile and the line of kings anointed by God disappeared. So this is where the New Testament picks up the story of this psalm and points it to Jesus as the one whom God set to rule over all the earth. When we read the pages of the New Testament, we realize that this psalm is fulfilled, that God has not forgotten his promise, that God is true to his word, that it does map out in history. We hear the coronation words of this psalm in the Gospels. We heard them this morning from Mark chapter 1. This is my beloved son, the word that came from heaven over Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was the ruler from the line of David, whom God anointed by his spirit and to whom God gave the ends of the earth as his possession. But what Jesus did in his earthly rule was not in the first place this vision of the all-crushing, triumphant rule, subduing all the nations, smashing his enemies like a pot. Jesus was not the crusher. He was the crushed. Jesus was not the breaker, but the broken. He did not hold in his hand a rod of iron, but rather iron nails pierced his body and held him to the cross. The nations of the earth and even his own people gathered around him and scoffed at him. They laughed at him. He was crowned, yes, but with a crown of thorns. Enthroned, yes, but on a cross, and declared to be king of the Jews, yes, but with as much sarcasm as his executioners could muster. But the joke was on them. Sin and evil stood to scoff at God's plans, claiming to have outwitted, outlasted, and outplayed and overthrown him. By crucifying him on the cross, Human beings express their utter rejection of God's anointed king. In his death on the cross, Jesus bore the brunt of everything that could oppose God. But this was the manner of his triumph. Like a skillful martial artist, he used the very, sort, the very force of evil to defeat itself. And his death, it turns out, was also the means for our sins to be forgiven. In Christ, God made atonement for the sins of the whole world so that you and I can find peace with him. He made Christ, Jesus Christ, a shelter so that we could take refuge in him. And by raising him from the dead, God confirmed that all of this was true. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus, the king who at this present time invites even his enemies to take refuge in him. Though his enemies gathered around him thinking they could defeat him, they were laughable, just as this psalm shows us. They were laughable in thinking that they could extinguish and destroy the Son of God, God's appointed king. What does Psalm 2 help us to see most clearly? That the Christian gospel is the declaration that Jesus is not just a nice guy, or a moral teacher, 
or a religious leader or a spiritual guru, but he is Lord. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. This is not just a matter of subjective choice, of how you feel about it, but the objective reality that the spectacles of the Bible help us to see. Jesus is Lord. And as Psalm 2 tells us, happy are those who take refuge in him. For now, there is an offer of refuge, an offer of amnesty. Submit to this Lord. Serve him. Find in following him the deepest love you can know and the greatest mercy. It's an easy choice to make when you see things the way this psalm depicts them. You know who's going to win. You know which one triumphs over the grave. You know which one God has appointed as Lord over all things. And it's Jesus. So take refuge in him. But don't be fooled. Jesus is Lord. And so don't ever side against him. Be assured that those who stand opposed to him know no future. They, they cannot stand. Know that this Lord could not even be defeated by the grave. Know that one day God will judge the world by his Son. And those who persist in conspiring against him, who ignore the call to amnesty, will be crushed. Now, this is actually good news. It's news we actually do want to hear. It means that the world we inhabit is a meaningful place. It means that those who do evil will not get away with it. It means that those who abuse their power, who think of themselves as gods in their own times, will not stand. The killers of those 12 poor Nigerian Christians will answer for what they've done. Those who abuse their power will be defeated. Those who arrogantly declare that Jesus has no more relevance in the modern world will know differently. In the final analysis, every knee will bow and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, take refuge in him. Be wise. And today, determine to serve the Lord with fear. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.